Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. We are stoked. We have Todd Do It on the podcast today. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. But before that, dig this. Leadership. You hear about this all the time. A word I like even more is authenticity. I want to ask you right now to stop caring at all in the moment how much someone likes you or whether or not you are popular and get focused on being full of character, working your butt off and producing great work because long term that'll earn you the one thing always better than popularity, which of course is respect. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if that doesn't get you excited, I think you're a zombie, right? Yeah, yeah. you're dead on arrival, man. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> so this is this is going to be a great one. Uh, we're so pleased to have Todd do it with us here today. Say hi, Todd. Hey, fellas. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Awesome. So quick intro. Todd grew up in Memphis. He started a career as a consultant, but got an academic itch and quickly uh, rose the academic ranks after earning his PhD in organizational behavior at Texas A&M, uh, was a professor, became a full professor, actually, and, uh, you know, won all the teaching and research awards. Uh, after 10 highly successful years in academia, he hung up his academic regalia, those fancy robes, and he left. Uh, fast forward to today, Todd is a professional speaker. He's given more than 1,000 speeches, including TEDx, uh, endless corporate events and conferences, military groups, religious organizations, and many nonprofits. He's talked live in numerous countries to more than 100,000 people. Inc. Magazine named him a top 100 leadership speaker, and he was hired by the National Speakers Association to teach professional speakers how to deliver killer keynote speeches. Todd's the author of numerous articles and books, including Show Your Inc. Stories About Leadership and Life. And dude, his client list isn't weenie either, right? <laughs> so he's got like IBM, Microsoft. TGI Fridays, Smuckers, Rustoleum, Pepsi, LinkedIn, so many. And when and normally when people say and many more, it's the numbskulls after that. But no, he's got like tons and tons of top, top flight global national organizations all over the place. It would just we only have so much time. We'd rather hear from Todd. So, Todd. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast, man. Hey, so glad to be here. I, I actually want to know what your hourly fee is. I'm taking both of you with me wherever I go, because that was an introduction right there, man. <laughs> that, that was serious. Thanks, fellas. <laughs> you betcha. You know, so, this is like playing t-ball. I don't. We're not having to even swing at a pitch here. You just already set it up for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, you're just an interesting person, Todd, and I think that's kind of where we want to start, um, you know, with... Uh, a little bit of your journey, a little bit of your background, and maybe we take it back to, you know, you know, you got, you went through undergrad, you're doing a little bit of consulting work, and then you get this crazy idea to go get a PhD, which is not a normal idea for a lot of people, right? Um, why did you decide to do that? And, and what was that like? 
Well, I think the short answer is uh, I had the privilege of starting career in a traditional route. You know, so I was with Anderson back uh, before they broke up and disappeared and all that and Ernst and Young for a small number of years. And what I figured out there uh, in the big box consulting world was pretty interesting. I figured out that I do love business the way I figured I did as a young student. Uh, I find it interesting. More importantly, I gravitated towards the relational aspects, uh, the people aspects of business as something that just uh, made sense to me and turned me on. I found interesting. And and taking that even further, it was just so blatantly obvious in the very first year or three of trying to be a young professional that people weren't great at it. Everyone was was struggling with this thing that, I'll say it differently now. At the time, I knew there was an opportunity to become an expert that was helpful to people. But the way I would say it now is that people very often have potential or expertise, competence, choose your, your word you'd like there, that does not translate into value added in a team or for an organization as it often should because they don't know how to deal with people effectively. That's a mouthful, but I think it actually explains a whole lot of what happens at work. And without being able to say it like that, I had that feeling uh, during the Ernst & Young time, and I realized uh, also I did not fit worth a damn inside of traditional corporate roles. I tend <laughs> to be loud, um, honest, and change agent oriented, and um, the cog in the wheel thing, which I fully respect. Respect, uh, if not love, most days I, I study the cogs and the wheels and the whole pyramid for a living, and I'm grateful to do so. I just didn't personally. I came to figure this out quickly. Fit inside of that world. And when the idea, to answer your question finally, the idea that I could go find a place that would allow me to indulge in a deeper, interesting, personalized way, my interest in business and relationships without being a traditional member of the hierarchy, if you will, that was immediately appealing long before I even vetted what the heck it meant to be a PhD or, or a professor. Just the idea of getting to have your cake and eat it too was what hit me. Hey, I love studying these things and I get to do it without reporting to a boss in the traditional sense every day. That sounded awesome. <laughs> it is outstanding. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you, you, for about a decade, you were a professor. What was that life like? And uh, what were some things you learned along the way about yourself or about life and leadership? It's an amazing job. Uh, I, I encourage anyone who's who's crazy and has a strong stomach <laughs> to go that route. I mean, you know this very well. Uh, when you get a PhD at any decent or or top school, it is it is hard work, and that's an understatement. People just won't understand unless they were to go through it themselves. Whole lot of hours, whole lot of stress, and. Oddly, for me, it's a question of fit, because if that path fits for you, then all the craziness I was just crudely explaining really feels more exhilarating on average than it does crazy, crushing, and stressful. Uh, And that was my experience. Hard work, for example, I've never been a mathematical genius. I mean, by, by definition, I'm above average or I couldn't have earned a good PhD. On the other hand, I don't love it. It's not my top skill. (laughs) And it makes my head hurt when I have to force myself to do it, which I do far uh, less commonly today. But for me, there was still gobs of room in that world to to really play with uh, ideas in a way you're not able to, to play with ideas elsewhere. So being a professor, once you survive the PhD for me, was a license to go play with ideas that you think are interesting and ideas that might be useful to people. And then what I really learned in, in the first, oh, geez, 
two, three years, I mean, pretty quick, was that the research side of it was something I was grateful I learned. I'm grateful I, I proved my cred. I'm grateful I, I stretched my intellectual prowess, all those things that on the dork side I just needed to do to say I can do this. Uh, but the truth is, what I found out really fast was that being in a classroom with adults, and I taught MBA students for 10 years, uh, being in a classroom with working adults, half of whom give or take were managers, was absolutely where the fit went from good to great, because now I get to do something I didn't know I was world-class at, and, and that is extemporaneous thinking. If you want to coach people, help people, and teach, other than just reading a script, which too many teachers do, extemporaneous thought, extemporaneous speaking is immensely valuable. And I didn't realize I had that. So I got this stuff I crammed into my head and I can pull from it in a very unique way for a person who asks a question or to tailor a lecture when they take me over to this direction that I wasn't expecting, etc. And that turned out to be more fulfilling than anything I could possibly imagine. And it's the number one reason that I had trouble, real hesitation, leaving the ivory tower. I was a tenured guy for life, job for life, was because I knew I would miss sitting in a classroom with adults, helping all of us get somehow better at this thing we call life and careers. That was so fun. I couldn't believe they paid me. And I had great difficulty walking away from that. Of course, I found other ways to kind of still do that. But what I learned about myself there is that I love the choice I made for a career. And I found a slightly better fit and way to do that, which is to help people in a coaching sense, whether that's writing videos, actual coaching. Um, and, and frankly, I found out that I'm a hilarious, good storyteller with a personality <laughs> that unexpectedly very, very unexpected. Yeah. It sells. When you want people to learn, touch emotions, tell a story. When you figure out how to do that, it's hilarious how they care about the issue so much more. So that became a thing. Yeah. And it's a double-edged sword, right? Somebody tell a good story. It can feed the biggest line of garbage down somebody's throat. Um, Don't even get me started, man. The whole world of uh, motivational speakers, which I am a part of and grateful to be a part of, is uh, like many areas of life, man, full of things that are kind of not so interesting and uh, there's not a lot of depth to them. And I'm being kind, as you can tell. And then there's people that come. <laughs> <laughs> I know I, I, if I have a blank look, it's because the cynicism is just going bam, 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 well, bam. I'll pick on a guy who's never, who's probably never going to hear this conversation. Do it. Do I, I did it. a, uh, I was a guest on some show out in LA once, uh, maybe, maybe five years ago. And the guest after me on the next show was Tony Robbins. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, wow for the success, period. Yeah. Uh, wow for that success. That's crazy. On the other hand, he's just a funny fella, and I love his success, <laughs> and he's interesting. I'd like to meet him someday, sure. But, but I mean, come on. He talks about technologies and other things. He's really become an amazing communicator slash marketer. He's not what I would think of, which will sound strange to a lot of people as a traditional thought leader. There's no background there that would suggest that at all. So I, uh, I have a bias. Ben, you get this. Mm -hmm. I come from a certain place, and we all like to remember our history, value it. And I like to say that even though I come off as a colorful guy, the truth is the vast majority of what I share with people is meaningfully rooted in something real called science. <laughs> yes. Yes. So let's let's talk about that. Just say, what was your research on when you did your Ph.D.? And then what were some of the themes that you really enjoyed teaching when you were teaching MBAs? 
Well, I did something uh, they on the research side, they tell you not to do. The main advice in that world is to specialize, 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 and then do some more specialization. <laughs> and and uh, I was uh, like, well, that sounds boring. <laughs> I couldn't, couldn't possibly agree more, which is why I did what, what a few people do, but not many, not, not at the top level. At the top level, they're very specialized. Uh, and I, I went wherever my interest took me. I was an organizational behavior professor, OB. And, and so that for me is people- Describe what that is. It's people stuff. It's it's the business school's version of uh, a shrink. Uh, we take psychology of six different flavors plus some some uh, anthropology, sociology, and other things, and we we use that to try and understand organizational life, individuals, teams, and, and and people dynamics at work. And I found that fascinating, and it leads to many answers to your question because uh, on a research side, I, I really thought I was going to be a creativity guy, and I chose Texas A and M because they had not one but two, and it was the only top school I found at the time that had two professors, both at A-level publications, studying organizational creativity or employee creativity. And I found that fascinating. And they let me in, and I went there, and I studied with them, and I sat on some of those journals, boards eventually, and published in some of those journals, um, which for those who care would be considered B and C publications. Most of most of the A-pubs do a, a tiny little bit of creativity-related uh, um, research on occasion, but it's not a big theme at all. And I never hit A's on uh, on that topic. But I really thought that was a fascinating topic. And then I got in the classroom, like I was saying, with all these young people, uh, young, they were 25 to 50, most of them. And, <laughs> and they were going through normal, crazy people stuff every day they would then bring into the classroom, which made for conversations that you can never plan, that are always colorful, and you never know where they're going. And that le- led me to want to study different parts of it. So I'd publish on you know groups over here, creativity over there, macro version of innovation over there and, and and feedback over here. And the topic would always shift a little bit on these people-related issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the classroom, it, that wasn't a problem. On the research side, if you wanted to become famous as a researcher, and I never was, I was just a good researcher at best, to be honest with you. I was a solid, legit scientist, but I wasn't considered the um, the stellar the stellar scholar. It was always a secondary interest to me, but the, the, here's the good news. The good news is that it gave me an amazing foundation. And then you walk into a classroom, and in the classroom, room, the idea of being a really competent generalist in an area that matters to learners is hugely valuable, whereas it wasn't necessarily as a researcher. So when I'm speaking to a constantly evolving group of interesting professionals in a classroom or now at at client sites or whatever it might be, I have this great pool of stuff to pull from and it shifts where it needs to shift based on their needs, their experiences, the problems they're facing. As a researcher, it wasn't always the, the, the same. So I'm just grateful I found a, a, a mode of professional life to use what fits me, which is being a dynamic generalist. Yeah, let me guess. You're right. My professor scores were high. They were <laughs> off the charts, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was That's like, great. put you on the spot. Am I going to have to edit that later? <laughs> I now, knew I should. <laughs> nobody. Yes. You know this, Chris. You got you got energy. Uh, you would have been fun to have in class, my man. Uh, I got to tell you, nobody is universally beloved. We all know this. And I'm no different. I'm popular. That's sure. why I do what I do for a living. Uh, but the, here's the truth. Nobody is ever full-time popular. In fact, I write about that. I got a new book coming out called Live Hard, where I talk about hell gigs and haters because we all have them. And even though I was a heralded professor at my university, Wright State University, that I loved, 
the truth is, uh, for every, I'll just pick a number, for every 47 out of 50 that just thought, man, that was value added, that was awesome, I'll, I'll cherish that forever. There was three that were like, I didn't get it, I didn't like it, and that felt horrible. That's life, and you just yeah. have to roll. The question is, can you get a high batting average? Can you find a high fit? And I'm grateful to have found that, so. Yeah, no, that's great. You know, one thing I'm curious about since, you know, you had this career doing, uh, you know, teaching MBA students, and then you've gone on and you've been interacting so much with the business community and doing all kinds of education and training in different ways there. I'm curious to know, you know, looking back on some of that, do you have a perspective or a point of view on kind of the um, where higher education is going and what's going on there? I mean, for example, is it worth it for people to still go get an MBA? It's a great question. I don't think there's a simple answer, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it tr- truly is a valid question. I don't think there's a simple answer. There, here's the only thing I can say simple about the NBA. It's definitely not what it used to be. The supply has gone through the roof in the last 30 years uh, for not so good reasons. Uh, basically, market, uh, market pressures have changed the NBA in a radical way. So 30, 40 years ago, an NBA was easily twice the number of hours that it is today, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, an NBA for a person that wants to learn a ton no matter where they're getting their MBA and or goes to a prestigious place with massive market value is still a terribly valuable asset to have, no doubt about that. But the average MBA is not an amazingly motivated learner. They're just another student like an undergrad because there's so many of them today. They're so common. And the average MBA program is good, not great. Now, that's a horrible thing to say, according to some of my former colleagues. But boy, I think actually what I said right now was measured in kind. There are, <laughs> yeah. there. I mean, I'm just being honest because I was a dean over an MBA program for a while. And I got to tell you, uh, there is a massively wide variance. And the reason is because the standards for governing those programs has changed very significantly over time. And it's basically been a race to the bottom with hours out of a need to be competitive. Supply goes crazy. People uh, start going online. Hybrid programs become far more normal than uh, full-time in-person classroom programs, which is what I went through years ago and those are very uh, uncommon today. Uh, So they went through that thing I'm describing to where you got to be careful. You got to be a great learner no matter where you go or choose the best brand and pay for it. If you want to get the benefit we used to think about always being associated with an MBA because now it's sometimes associated with an MBA. That's my honest opinion. Uh, But then there's a second part of the answer to your question. We're going through a pandemic which has now exposed and exacerbated all kinds of interesting things in higher education not just in MBA land, uh, but in general, I've got a boy who's 17, so we're thinking a lot about uh, college right now. The truth is they've always been expensive, if not overpriced, for the last several decades, and people wonder about the value because— Well, did they take—they took—right? They took—you're going to make this extra money, right? And we'll just do a discounted cash flow, and then they'll set the tuition right there, right? (laughs) Believe me, I wish it was that simple. I wish there was math. They're praying no one ever talks about the math, to be honest with you, because what they've been sued over time and again across many schools is is offering something that's not there. That is to say, implying or stating thou shalt benefit in great ways from our degree, when in fact they can't make that happen. But that's a problem right there. Yeah. Because this is this idea of... Now, my undergrad, so I'm like three classes, something short of an undergrad in theology, historical studies, before I transferred and studied sacred music because I was into Byzantine chant and stuff like that. <laughs> You're I really looking s- for a high-paid job, huh, bud? <laughs> no, I was six years undergrad and loved it. I would go, 
Yeah, I'd go to my professor and say, yeah, I know why you assigned that book. That's the only one anybody will read, but this is the better text on it. Can I read this one instead? I had the best chats. I was learning, learning, learning. I didn't give a rip about well, the money I was going to Well, why did you stop so short? What, what do you mean? What did, well, what do you mean why start? didn't you finish? No, I, I uh, did. I finished with the music degree. I okay, needed to go okay. ahead and graduate. I went to Good. Nashville. I played music. And I decided to get my master's in accounting because I had all these business questions. You know, I'd done I'd been in the National Guard, so I kind of had this leadership teams thing, you know, practice. And I wanted more of a quantitative side of business. So I studied accounting. Um, I've met very few fellow students, right, that were just like, oh, my God, this is learning is so fun. I just can't wait to read this stuff. Let's you know? let's go ahead and say something controversial, shall we? Uh, I, I lean left, by the way, on a lot of issues, especially social issues for those who care. Not that it matters, but this a little context Me for too. you. Uh, higher ed ha- has got a large uh, a base of people who support it, which makes me very happy. I like education a lot. Uh, on the other hand, their, their passion point that they want to argue for as correct is that everyone deserves college education, and I do not agree. College right. education requires a massive amount of time and money and resources. And the idea that with a country our size, everyone somehow has that right is absurd economically. I think that it's on its face obvious. And and I'm in the minority. Most people, especially on the left, absolutely think that should be a time-honored right, just like healthcare, which we all still dream of in certain ways. No, uh, it it shouldn't be. Professors, guys like me, are all six figures, and there's lots of us to create this thing we call a a university, right? Education. Mm. And then you got to hang out forever. It's expensive. It's crazy. I don't think we're supposed to have everyone there who is there. In fact, I could pick on universities. I could I could talk about how beautiful they are <laughs> forever. I love education. It's what I do in a different way now. I'm going to be an educator till I die, that's for sure. On the other hand, the number of questionable things they've done in the last 50 years is hilarious. For example, just to keep the supply growth of students coming onto campuses, an enormous amount of U.S. institutions anyways, I'm not sure how this played out in other industrialized countries, created what's called the University College. That is a new college on the university, a place where we will put what? Students who could not get the entrance requirements for the business school, the med school, the law school, the engineering school, whatever the school was they wanted to get into. They didn't have the courses or the GPA. And who wants to tell that paying student, get off campus, you didn't make it. So we create a new college on the campus. Your money's green. Your money's green. Come on We like your money. (laughs) We're going to create something just for you because we love our customer, which is a beautiful idea, basically. But sometimes we love that idea so much it makes bad decisions such as stay here, let us give you a degree. Guess which college grew more than almost any other on every campus in the last 30 years? The university college. People with degrees that are quite literally admittedly an amalgam as opposed to having a degree in writing, history, business, whatever it is. It's an amalgam. Hey, you got the hours. It's not about courses anymore. You got the hours. We will call you a degree. Just like the engineering student or any other traditional college student. And that is on average over time, one guy's opinion, a problem if you want the value of the degree to matter. Right. So before we're going to shift to what made you leave being a professor, but let me get you to resonate on this real quick. Sure. You know, stuff like calculus, college calculus, the humanities, there's so much of that that kind of knowledge that can be like MIT doesn't have a secret calculus book that no other school has. Um, but you, there's a standard you have to be able to hit to get some of that knowledge. You know, like when you come to Nashville and you're going to do an audition, nobody says, did you go to Berkeley or, you know, Tennessee State University School of Music? They don't even care if you came to Jim Bob's practice shack after you did your day job plumbing. 
That's right. It's when it when it's time to rip, it's time to rip. So no matter what kind of degree you got, when you hit the challenges of life, business challenges that have ambiguity, um, challenges in your interpersonal relationship, all that stuff, well, it's time for you to solo. You either got that information that might help you get over those humps or you don't. So, I, you know, I love that liberal view of everybody getting education. I'm not opposed to it, but there's a standard that's required that you get to if you really have the stuff like i don't care you're, if you studied you're, piano you're, 20 years you you're so sentimental play. chris yeah i don't i don't think that's true anymore i think it should really? be true i think this oh I'm it's speak- no it's not true in the institution i'm just saying Correct. in life so if if you know i mean when it comes to publishing papers and stuff the proof will be in the pudding eventually so i anyway uh, well, we, let's, let's so do a you, whole episode on that. We should at some point. take your take your comment on calculus. Uh, I'll go back to my area that I know about the MBA. The MBA had, like I said, uh, thirty years ago, double the hours on average for any program. By the way, there were a fraction of the number of programs then than there are now. Right. But they they had over sometimes double the hours that you will see now. Uh, Sixty versus twenty something is is very much a real comparison, which is crazy if you think about it. Calculus was always, I repeat, always on the list. Why? Because it's necessary for success as a young Young, uh, business professional? No, because it's an arbitrary thing we do in education sometimes to set mental hurdles to make sure that in general, people who cross the hurdle are bright people. That is no longer a valid thing to do. So if our education is complete crap, you might be smart enough to not make us look stupid in the end. <laughs> there, there, there's tons of tons of truth to that. I'm not saying it's right, but it's true. So what we've done is taken all those arbitrary looking standards that are a barrier to reducing hours and getting more customers and removed them. Calculus is rare in an MBA program, uh, in most MBA programs today. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's do another, let's just get that one on the books. We'll do a higher ed uh, <laughs> there you episode. Go. So, so why'd you leave being a professor? Uh, a few reasons. One is, is, is I am, like I said, I'm a cantankerous personality. And as much as I love, um, the fit I found, as much as I am grateful to A&M and Wright State University and the 10 years I spent there, um, I found two things were true. One was there was enough problems I had with with uh, uh, the fit, meaning I could imagine even better fit possibly as a, what, what I'm a solopreneur, an entrepreneur. Um, so I saw... I saw a, a love of, of butts in seats. I became a dean for a short period of time. And I remember, uh, I'm just being honest, it didn't work. Do you think this this guy looks like a dean? It didn't work. Uh, You're my I kind of dean, but I, I'd, I'd run a school right into the ground. I did. I did. I was the worst dean in history. Anyhow, um, the truth is, uh, I remember just one example that explains or kind of answers your question. I remember one time sitting in front of early on in that tenure, um, sitting in front of a a provost of the university um, and saying, here's my idea. I'm the new guy. I've been asked to rethink this particular graduate program. And here's the vision. Here's what we're going to do and why. And it's going to be great for us. Here are the benefits we predict, A, B, and C. I'm excited. Let's do this. Give me permission. And the answer was no. And the biggest thing I did to upset them was to demand slightly, slightly increased standards in admissions which short term may have had a, a, a problematic effect on the number of butts in seats, but long term, I was arguing and my team were arguing uh, that we would overall benefit and increase the quality and the reputation and everything good about this in the long term, five years out. And the answer was no, 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 and no. That's a sacred thing. How dare you? Butts in seat rocks, butts in seats rocks. And, and so th- there were a handful of ideas like that that had nothing to do with education that sounded simplistic and, and, 
and not too useful that really got on my nerves uh, about higher education, number one. And then number two, unexpectedly, you guys know this, man, you make a plan, hopefully you make a plan in life and then life has its own plan for you and things unfold. Well, I thought I was going to be a scholar teacher guy until I was 70. They give me a little watch and I retire. And uh, well, you know, people, it turns out if you have some expertise, number one, number two, know how to communicate it in a way that makes people kind of listen, understand, and care about it. That's pretty rare. I didn't appreciate that until I got to my job in the ivory tower. Well, when that's true, your phone starts ringing. So I get this question all the time. Hey, man, how'd you get all those clients? Hey, man, uh, how did you become a speaker? And how does that start? I'm like, I don't know. I sit around and wait for the phone rings and it rings. It's not a very, it's not a sexy thing to share with someone. And it sounds horribly indulgent. I know that. Hey, guys, but that's I been put my... my pants on one leg at a time. But then I go make hit records. Right. I got up and answered my emails. That's how. I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer other than that. So anyhow, about five years into that 10-year run, um, the phone started ringing and, and people started asking me to come do things and speak and so on. And that just grew and grew from free and local to paid and regional to paid and national and now the globe. And uh, I, I don't know why that happened exactly. Maybe it's just as simple as knowledge and delivery like we were talking about. But at some point, I had to make a decision about where to focus my efforts because I was canceling classes and canceling classes and ca- to travel around and get on stage to tell stories at when events. you use your entire speaking salary to buy out your tenured hours so you don't have to teach <laughs> you know it's funny i never had to do the buyout because they were i was getting quotes in cnn new york times things like that just for being oh, so they oh, loved oh, that they loved it so they were so happy they were like good for you go do your thing and they meant that until i canceled february <laughs> I, canceled <the> whole, <laughs> I canceled the whole month once to go do a whole bunch of things and that's the first time they said look we got to talk about your focus and uh then a strange thing happened and i won't tell you the whole story unless you want to hear it i'll give you the 10 second version my ex-wife slash really good friend and the mother of my two kids was living mm. in dayton ohio where i was uh being a professor and she had a strong desire for growth opportunities for the kids and for herself to move to houston texas where there was family and friends and better culture and business opportunities and all kinds of things. And she proposed that to me. I'm like, you want me to, to give up this tenured gig for, for life when I have two young school-aged children to do this? And she said, well, I think we should consider it. You've always been talking about being a, an entrepreneur and really rolling the dice on doing that more full-time. And I thought about it. Long story short, I really agreed. I ended up doing that. So I retired at 42 and I moved to Houston with no job and have been building a solo thing uh, ever since. So number one, I had some small issues that were growing and festering with the life in the ivory tower. Uh, and then number two, the solo thing was calling me. And I've been doing that ever since, since 2013. And it's going well. So I'm quite grateful. Now, now for our listeners that are out there, like Ben and I harp on this all the time, you have serious problems and there are real science-based solutions, but most of the pop stuff that tickles your fancy is garbage that's out here. And so the reason we have uh, Dr. Todd do it here on the podcast today is this guy has a PhD. So even if he's speaking on topics that he didn't do extensive research, he knows how to look at the research, do a professional literature review, formulate something. And then he also has this experience as a consultant, right? Solving problems in businesses. And then as an educator within college settings, experimenting with the best ways to get these ideas 
across, right? So, I mean, this is like the perfect, uh, I don't know, trifecta, quinfecta. He's hes a fully operational Death Star of the kind of stuff that we look for <laughs> when we recommend stuff to organizations, right? He's not going to feed you a bunch of baloney that doesn't work. He's going to make it palatable and humorous, which, it help, like he says, helps the medicine go down and be memorable. Yep. It's actually based in the stuff you want it to be based on because there's just this difference. So MBA, a lot of the knowledge that I've seen that comes in these business comes out of widget counting, velocities, you know, this waterfall, project management, all that kind of stuff. Um, but there's this world of psychology because we're not a brick in the wall. We're not like Todd said, like we're not a cock. So let's talk about some of the core messages that have been themes for you. So leadership's a big topic for you. So I started there. Uh, absolutely. That, that's kind of the umbrella that still follows me around the most, for sure. The, the label that sticks um, in leadership is an amalgam of a whole bunch of people related thing. The idea is uh, using influence and, and uh, other assets you might have to get people to achieve things. That's a crude definition. And and I told you back in the EY days, from the very beginning, for me, I was watching people screw this up and use fear and use authority in some ham-handed way and other things that kind of got things done in the short term that I was not convinced at all was creating the long-term thing things that the team needed to be effective. That just kind of stuck in my craw. And, and then I started studying it and figured out the research uh, very often backs up the common sense. Does not always. That's an interesting facet of getting into, mm. into the science. It does not always. But very often some core ideas, hey, trust is good. Hey, how do we screw up trust? How do we build trust? It, the science does tend to, to back up your, your gut on those issues. And so I'm looking at teams and I'm thinking, what's the biggest problem? What's the biggest problem? The one that I chose to really throw down on uh, probably I don't know, about 10 years ago was this issue of authenticity. And, and the reason I, I, I've, it stuck to me and, and people kind of know me for it. I'm going to be talking about it for the next 20 to 30 until I'm done talking is because there's a need to talk about it. So when I watched people at work or today, I go in, I meet a team, whether it's the first meeting and they're posturing like crazy or the 10th meeting, if I'm doing some work with them, which is less common, by the way, I'm more of an entertainer writer these days. But having said that, uh, they still posture. Everyone acts. None of us were trained to be thespians. Everyone goes to work every day and acts. We play a role. We want to please uh, the person at the front desk. We want to please our colleagues. We want to please our boss. We want to please our customers. We want to please our vendors. There's millions of constituents around us, all of whom we feel we'd like to be kind to and meet their expectations. I think that makes you a reasonable, socially intelligent person. My observation was that the typical a professional does that too much, too passionately, too often. And as a result, what we see in terms of relationships and productivity and creativity is measured and plastic and distant and barely meets minimum relationships. People not feeling comfort. One of my great litmus tests for everything inside relationships, whether it's at work or not, is comfort. Uh, they're not feeling comfort. They're not willing to take risks, which is the backbone of creativity and innovation. They, in fact, are minimally complying. Instead, of doing the one thing we know always leads to greatness, which is committing, really committing, radically different than just complying. So once that idea, that observation just started hitting me time and again, I started thinking, well, how can I uh, do something about this? And the word that I thought would be most useful uh, in terms of writing, speaking, coaching today is authenticity. Most people, and there is research, plenty of it to back this up. Most people want and crave authentic relationships with other humans that make them feel kind of modestly validated. 
human. Uh, I can be okay with myself because the person I related to is decent and kind of seemed kind to me, interested in me, validated me. That makes me feel whole as a human. I hope that doesn't sound too touchy-feely, but humans want that. And what the research tells us is that we don't give that to each other hardly ever because we are so, for reasons that don't make a ton of sense, uh, overindulging in managing impressions. So people work, you ever heard this? People work together for many, many years. And then if you press them, and this is the kind of thing outsiders like me do all the time. If you press them, they know <laughs> a truncated little bit about them. They don't know some flowing, evolving depth of things about them. These very people they sat next to and know by first name for 30 years. That's common. That's very common. The question is, how do you get high productivity? How do you get creativity, innovation, new ideas people act on and, and push until they add value? And you don't get that with those distant, measured, fake relationships. And work is dominated by that fakeness. And it drives me nuts. And so I've been a troubadour for authenticity for many years now. So why do you think this, uh, you know, being authentic is a rare thing? Why, why do people posture at work? And, well, that's the psychology, why is it so prevalent? Yeah. You know that, man. We, we all have insecurities. The question is what variety and how much. And, yep. and, and because that's true and we're all bringing that into a group setting, now you've got this potpourri of ridiculous insecurities at all kinds of depths. And everyone can sense that without knowing how to articulate it at all. And so the common response to that is to clam up and or manage impressions, become more risk adverse. Those are very common reactions to that human reality that we keep inside. My job or, or the psycho or psychologist's job or any kind of coach really is to go in without making people feel bad about that <laughs> and get people to pull back the veil and let a little more of that unrefined, though it may be, human out. Because once they do that, they gain comfort. Once they're in a group where they have learned to find that acceptable, to validate that, to talk about that, to make that part of their norm, the more others reciprocate. And when you get that happening and you still keep in real standards and expectations in place, that's a team that flies high. So when people like me go look at high-performing teams, we see some predictable things. And one of them is definitely more authenticity. I can still push them. But generally speaking, they like feedback, candid talk, and authenticity a lot more in high-performing teams. They've learned to stop bullshitting and skip the innuendo and start getting to the point faster instead of slower as a norm of behavior. And when you do that, on average, and this is not a perfect process, we can talk about the conflict and pain, but on average, over time, when teams learn to do that, you should expect higher results for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you say to a, a leader who says, I, I buy it, Todd, like this authenticity thing makes a lot of sense. Uh, my team doesn't do it. I probably, if I'm being honest, haven't done it myself. Uh, how do I start that? And, and um, you know, it, it seems a little scary, maybe. Yeah, it's definitely scary. I get claps and claps and claps, and then people pull me aside and go, so let's talk about the reality here, kid. Um, <laughs> so, uh, this, <laughs> and now for the rest of the story, you know, the Paul yeah, Harvey yeah. There, yeah. there. There's a downside, uh, which we can talk about in a minute if you want to, but but first of all, the scary jumping off. How does one go from wherever we are today to something that looks more congenial, authentic, open, and unfiltered? Well, you start is the short answer. So let's, let's get, kind of get into a little more fine-grained answer than saying, hey, just start. 
Uh, for me, power is immensely important at work and people higher than you in the hierarchy have more than you by position. And whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, very often people don't know it, uh, that affects people. I mean, in a visceral way, power invested in a position affects people who are beholden to that power. And so what I have to do is educate people at a given level about the power they have that they didn't know they had because they usually feel powerless, which is not true. And then once they know that, they realize that their model is everything. The answer to your question is you got to start because if you don't start as a person with power over others, others will not reciprocate. They might, but it's rare and you're not going to plan on that. On average, leaders lead the way, model the way. That's the short answer. So how do you do that if you're scared like you guys kind of knew some people are? Well, it's toe in the water. I never tell people, hey, you show up Friday in your three-piece suit with your business-only conversation, blah, 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 and then Monday you show up in a Grateful Dead t-shirt and jeans and start using cuss words. You don't do that. You'd never do that. That's an abrupt, crazy thing that will make people assume (laughs) you're having a midlife crisis. Instead, toe in the water a little bit, explain it, laugh about it, let them react to it. After the third time you do that, they kind of gain comfort. They see it as a real genuine thing you're trying. Then the reciprocation starts and a new dynamic begins. It is a slow, little bit at a time process of building comfort with a little more human interaction, not just pure business interaction. But when you put the two together, I'm not saying you got to be best friends. That's not true at all. But when you put the two together, a little human interaction, a little positive personal interaction with the business interaction, that is very often a lubricant that makes teams far more interested in change, improvement, creativity, and innovation. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's really interesting about that, too, is that in order to kind of start that whole process, you know, any leader has to kind of by definition start behaving in a way that's a little bit socially deviant, right? You kind of have to start um, acting in ways that are perhaps a little odd, um, or at least at first, right? So take putting that toe in the water. And one thing that, you know, Chris and I have talked a lot about, and we see in, in organizations that we've worked with is, you know, people are sometimes so scared to do that. Or, um, you know, there's a cultural norm where, uh, you know, if you have any kind of idea that is outside of the the boundary of what what's acceptable, you're considered an organizational heretic. But, you know, we, we kind of think, long live the organizational heretic and the and the and the reasonable social deviant because that makes a lot of difference it's not just making a lot of difference it's utterly essential you didn't know it but you're setting me up so my book that's about to come out is called live hard and it's utterly dedicated to that topic it's about living nice. fully it's about embracing principled risks and supporting creativity and innovation and one of the chapters is the price of deviance because <laughs> oh yeah anything good that happens in terms of change in organizations started with someone ruffling some feathers somewhere that is almost always true true. It's rare that someone says, I see an opportunity for change and people feel unthreatened and excited about it and we hold hands and get it done. No, (laughs) almost (laughs) always it ruffles feathers. It goes against norms. It makes people nervous for a variety of predictable reasons. I'm going to lose power. I'm going to have to do more work than normal. This could fail and make me look stupid, even though it wasn't my idea. And I could list 30 more that make people stop in the moment and not support an idea that might have a lot of merit. Being a deviant, I mean, I kind of build my career around this, to be honest with you. Being some sort of iconoclast, outspoken change agent, a deviant is fun. It is the backbone, the kernel of innovation, and it is absolutely dangerous. It's not for the lighthearted, man. There's risks involved. For every three people that love you, there will be 10 that go, that guy's a pain in my backside. Uh, And the question is not, is that true? The question is, how do you feel about that? Because that's the truth. 
Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm glad. So the live hard, I think that that's a title that will sell. But what I, I, what I find interesting in everything that you say, you go raw with a big title, right? And then like motivates that change. People feel that call to action, but then you follow it up with all this freaking responsibility. It's yeah. not, you're not taking a chainsaw to people in your organization. Like, you know, Freddy Kruegering, everybody around, there's bodies going everywhere. My organization's a disaster, 80% turnover, but look at me, I am Spartacus. No, it's a, it's a, it's an un, it's what's the word? It's a thankless role in many, many ways, because what happens, and I love talking about this. I really do. It's, mm. I'm, I'm so glad we're actually, you're giving me a, a moment to talk about this topic. It's really fun. It's where I started academically. It's where I've come back to now uh, professionally. Um, the truth is that we love to herald champions in the popular business world. Yeah. We, we do it. And it's very dishonest, very dishonest. Yeah. We look at Jack to, Welch, almost correct. all of his stuff was garbage. We know it's garbage, but back then it's like, oh, are you a Jack Welch scholar? Do you think he's like, like Jack, like, you know, jump in a lake, Jack Welch. I, I like that you're as shy as I am, Chris. It's awesome. Yeah. So what, he, by the way, great guy, great accomplishments uh, and overrated in terms of the the point I'm trying to make, which is that we we treat people as, as pure and perfect icons when they hit a certain right. status. And in the business press, maybe the only one I can think of that was even, even worse than that was Steve Jobs. This guy's just a, an angel walking among us. Right. And and that's not true. Uh, he was problematic in 75 different ways that we all know. If you've ever researched the fella, as much as he was interesting, he was a big problem. And and that's true. So what the business press does in, in many ways is go, what's a cool success story I can talk about? And on the one hand, that's useful, that's informational, and that's kind of inspiring. On the other hand, and this is where I come in, it is absolutely a radically incomplete picture of the world of innovation inside an organization. Because to get to that, there is a massive battlefield of people who got stepped on, people who tried and failed, and a gazillion other people who aren't being held up for the go-getters they really are, who just didn't quite get over and hit the home run. But they tried like hell, and we don't ever value them. There's a woman at uh, Harvard, amazing, had a big impact on me. Her name's Teresa Mobley, does that ring a bell? Mm -hmm. yeah. yep. Teresa Mobley, interesting, interesting scholar. And uh, her one of her major contributions was introducing the social psychology of creativity. That's how she coined it. And the idea was simple. Instead of trying to hire a few creative geniuses to make our organization and our team more creative, what we really need to do is realize that all of us and everybody else on the team has an inherent amount of creativity. And if we'll figure out how to lead every day, then we can change this reality. The reality is they have this much, Todd does, whatever this amount might be, but he brings this much to work every day. So I'm lesser amount because he feels the need to manage impressions. He feels the need to not get in trouble. A million other things that stop us from performing up to our potential on any given area of performance. But if you learn how to lead correctly, build that rapport, be authentic, build trust, model the way all the things we know are the backbones of great business relationships, at least for a leader, then you'll get people to really at least get close to their potential. And across the team, that means a whole lot more creativity. So one thing she did about the reality we're talking about with Jobs and Jack Welsh. One thing she did is say, you better start rewarding people who make great efforts that aren't going to pan out because making great efforts that ruffle feathers lead to more mistakes and just cost money, but don't look like instant revenue, making mistakes and efforts that is going to be done time and time and time and time again, before we get to the value added, polished, beautiful idea that changes that process or that business model. That's the norm. We've got to stop acting like that's a problem. And those people aren't worth defending because all those people that eventually led to that cover of Steve Jobs on the magazine, 
They're the heroes. They're the ones that had to take the arrows in the back. And so we got to validate, and this led to a whole revolution of what eventually was called in the 90s, the learning organization. Yeah. We got to admit that we're stupid and we can't, we can't do things the first time correctly. And that's okay. So let's yeah. laugh about it, learn something, accelerate the learning. And that's how we're going to win. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that's great. You know, one thing I'm wondering as you're talking about this, these ideas of creativity and social deviance is it seems like these things are even more per- perhaps important in a time of ambiguity and uncertainty. And I think a lot of leaders right now are dealing with a lot of that. Obviously, in the last four months or so, we're, we're recording this in the, the end of July 2020, dealing with COVID, um, as well as issues of racial unrest and changing types of ideas in, in that, that space. I'm wondering how that how you can take that and maybe apply it to some of those um, situations or if they apply here at all. Well, I, I, not surprisingly, that's why I'm in this business. I have opinions on that, uh, Ben. Thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> I, I, there's an old political maxim that is really worn out and, and worn out for a reason because it's valuable and it applies to your question, which is, you know, never waste a good emergency or some version of that. Never waste a good crisis yeah. uh, has been said many times. And there's an organizational corollary that's just awesome. And the idea is well, things are tough. Great. Well, making changes you thought about, but haven't yet fully acted on or acted on at all become a little bit sometimes a little bit more easy to act on during difficult times that have just hit us as opposed to when things are going well. That's a really interesting idea for, to get your head around for a while but it tends to be somewhat true, at least in my experience. And I think that right now with this pandemic, where we've been forced to do things that are unconscionable, the numbers of people working remotely, for example, just unconscionable a few years ago, uh, really gives us some opportunity. Here's one of them. And this is hard to say without sounding like a bad person and a simplistic business person. And I'm not, I'm pro people within business times 10, but I'm going to say it anyway. We have watched businesses be forced in large numbers that are horrible to let people go as they're businesses have suffered thanks to the pandemic. That is horrible in a million ways. I could talk about how the government and the companies maybe should ideally respond to that. But one of the many answers is that this is an opportunity for them, one they didn't ask for, but they probably should use, even if it sounds difficult to say, to reevaluate their bench, to look at their talent, who should be let go, who should be retooled and reassigned and put over there in a different role, who should be hired. The idea of making, let's say, significant instead of small changes to our talent pipeline does not come around often. And when you have an opportunity, I'm talking usually once in a decade, maybe for a company to make a, uh, in a short period of time, a large change to the talent pool, that is a ridiculously rare thing. So yes, there's a need for love and compassion. I could go on for that forever. But right now, just as one example, they should be using this as an opportunity to reevaluate, not just stress strategy, which is obvious, but the the talent that's supporting it as well, talent operations strategy, all of them should be uh, up on that big, clean whiteboard more than ever before during crises, not during good times. Yeah, yeah. You know, another thing that you talk about, uh, and I think is related to all these ideas, um, you talk about this in your speaking as well as in your writing, is this this idea of character, uh, the sure. importance of values. Um, you know, I uh, well, I kind of thought leadership was just about saying the right things and, and looking good in a nice suit, right? Um, what is, what's your definition of character and, and why do you think it matters? 
Well, I think it's very difficult. This is what me and the me and my religious friends are very, uh, you know, we can argue about for sure. I think it's difficult to define uh, what it means to do the right thing. But that is the answer yeah. to your question. Uh, ethics is about doing the right thing. And then uh, principled people should be able to engage a conversation about what that means. And that's a, a legit quality short answer in my in my opinion. Um, so there's a prescribed answer to that in certain areas. Religion obviously comes to mind. Uh, but inside organizational life, you have norms, you have precedents, you have uh, rules and regs that have been created. Some are dated, some are fresh. You have uh, uh, governance issues within the industry where you operate. So there's many bases that you might look to to start answering that question. The short answer is, what does it mean to do the right thing? Uh, and and I'll, I'll give you, I believe, this is not going to shock you, I believe in common sense and in, in busy people. This is what I learned. I used to try and preach the first couple of years of being a PhD with big four-syllable words. Look at me, man. I can. T- why, would you say, <laughs> why would you say are things related when you can ask if they're orthogonal? You know? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, right. <laughs> there are many ways to show the big words you know. Uh, so what I've done is abandon that radically, and here's why. People are very busy, and busy people need simple places to start thinking if you actually want them to hear you and make possible changes. And that is so, so true. And so I, I like to be simple with people. When I think about ethics, I go, hey, how about the sunshine test? You know, we could talk about deontological and all kinds of theoretical things that are very interesting. But the truth is, how about the sunshine test? I mean, you're asking me, and I get comments on online from people every day from the four corners of the planet, thanks to LinkedIn and my other activities. And I hear all kinds of questions every day. And I I can tell you, I give them the sunshine test all the time. You're asking me, hey, what should I do in this situation? And my first question is to you, well, when you think about the array of options, uh, if you were to imagine this one right here, and you're going to do that thing, uh, if everyone you know at work uh, was to be aware of that, how would you feel about that? Okay, good. Good for you. Now, consider that same option if your family, and especially your mom was to know that you were going to go with that choice in this situation, uh, how would they feel? Okay, now, if your choice, same choice, was in the newspaper for the community to read or online for the world to see, how would you feel? That's the sunshine test. There's many versions of it. So I like simple and practical because to your point, bringing it up, it matters. What we know is that in systems of people, we sometimes will push to a secondary burner thoughts of ethics, morals, values, and related notions. And, and it's easy to do that. It's so easy. I'll give you an example, and I bet you two could give me a ton from your experiences. I had a boss. This is a big consulting firm. Years ago, came to me, wanted to see my timesheet. I was filling it out with expenses, simple thing we did for many years. I know some people still do. And he said to me, uh, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do this. And he pers- proceeded to show me quietly, hushed tones, how to pad, basically, my expense report, because I was recording uh, some things that were that were small. And if I would just uh, lie and say I took a cab as opposed to the, the subway or other simple lies, tiny little uh, obfuscations, then I could put extra dollars in my pocket. He thought he was doing something cool, showing me how to game the system this way. That is one example. There are millions. And, and if people feel them, see them, are subject to them. Over time, it makes them feel defeated. It makes them not to want to see another. It's just another thing that makes us less comfortable, more risk averse. Goodbye innovation, goodbye productivity, hello minimal compliance, all those things that are uninspiring about work teams. So I'm all about the sunshine test. We're supposed to be loud and proud about these issues because the more people are talking about them, the less our worst selves will ever feel comfortable showing up at work. Does that make sense? Right. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, we talk about bringing your whole self to work, which I think it was the LGBT community really helped bring that 
to the forefront, which I'm a big LGBT ally. Um, I, they've made our society, their struggle has made everybody's life better. Even if you're not in that community, uh, our society, our globe is better because of that. But let's talk about bringing that whole self to work. You know, what does that mean? And and what do, what do we do with the shysters that, you know, they're just really a real piece of crap and they're bringing their whole self to work? Because you <laughs> we don't want your whole self sometimes. Right. You know, it's like, wait, we actually wanted you to take your whole self out to the back parking lot and leave. Right. But it's it's this idea of, you know, you. A lot of people, you know, if you're a rank and file worker, .NET right. developer, and then you just watch all this unethical shenanigan crap. And then the head of HR is like, let's bring our whole self to work. And you're like, I, I don't know, resonate on some of that. Yeah, I mean, it's a great uh, point. I love your example. I'm a huge ally as well. I think about young people, women, minorities, LGBT, uh, et cetera. These, these, these folks are frontline for uh, having to push harder than the rest of us to try and improve us. And, and they have my heart for sure. Um, so the truth is, I laugh when I hear people talking about uh, bring your whole self to work because none of us, none of us are perfect. So why would we want to let all of the disgustingness out at work? I'm, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just being honest. I think the <laughs> the, the, the point that people are trying to make is actually a great, amazingly important point that jives with my work for sure. And that is that we're supposed to bring more of the real us to work. And that's just undoubtedly a useful thing to say. But guess what? We're all imperfect. And some of us, to your point, are wacky on a regular basis, whether that's being unethical, unpleasant, or somehow inappropriate in the eyes of others. And so, yes, I, this, you've, you've asked me without asking me. There is a downside to authenticity. There are some people we know, please don't name them gentlemen who we don't want to hear more from. This gets into uh, several issues if you want to talk about how to manage that. One is how we hire. Two is standards of setting expectations and performance and, and accountability. And if those things aren't, let's just call them optimized, then you would expect to see imperfect talent on the bench. That's normal. Jack Welsh, you mentioned him. One of the things he said that I did enjoy was, hey, everyone uh, hires imperfectly. I'm paraphrasing badly. Everyone hires uh, the wrong guy guy sometimes, and that's not evil and you're not bad as a result. What's bad is doing nothing about it, so let's go correct that as quickly as possible with compassion. And that is uh, a brave thing to say. And I say the same thing. Others have gotten famous. Robert Sutton out at uh, Stanford, he got famous with the, uh, forgive my French, the no asshole rule. That was a book that was a bestseller for him and a point that many people for many years had made before him, but boy, he said it better than the rest of us. <laughs> and the point is that standards of behavior not just standards of performance, mm. absolutely matter. And your job, and this is where life gets hard at work, whether you're a formal leader or just a .NET developer, to use your example, is whether or not you're going to call it out when you see it. Far too often the answer is no, because we don't see it as within our power. We don't see the payout. We do see the risks. And that's unfortunate. Great leaders change that by making it okay to talk about those standards we should all care about. In fact, it's a great time to mention this because you wanted me to be a dork today. So here I go. What are more strong at work in terms of shaping behaviors, rules and regs that we've created that are formal in an HR policy book or informal, unwritten group norms? And the answer on average tends to be group norms. That is to say what the group tends to enforce or support gets done behaviorally, whether it's written down in a policy book or not. So the question is, are you building great behavioral norms in that team or not? All right. So all of this stuff, and I, I like to pose this question to people because it's almost in the speaking world, in the business world, it's like, oh, if this company doesn't line up with your values, leave. 
or you can risk your career and job and paycheck by standing up and being the champion of right. But when I came out of grad school, Sarbanes-Oxley compliance was rolling off and everybody was unemployed. We rolled into a big depression. We're rolling in unemployment through the roof right now. Sometimes you just have to, you know, bend over and take it in the workplace of life. So for for those when there's structural unemployment and you're just glad to not be on food stamps and there's nothing wrong if somebody, a listener's on food stamps, but right when we have these crushing economic things, how, what's the best way for an ethical way forward for a person to navigate when they're, they're just trying to survive? That's a, it's a, it's a great question. So the truth is sometimes I have to, uh, I speak in generalities to everyone who are professionals or everyone who are managers. Uh, and sometimes I have to tailor it to a, a segment. So let me start answering by giving you, uh, this mm-hmm. tailored response, which is your goal. I say this to young people all the time. Your goal is not to be a graduate. It's, it's not to be necessarily CEO if that's not your dream, but you definitely want to be way above average as a performer. I'd like to say a 15 or 20 percenter. You really, really, really want that to be manifest in different ways from the promotions, from the quality of the network, the ratings, the the, the raises, etc. Because it is not necessarily fair, but beautiful if you're in the group, in-group privileges, right? If you're right. in the group, it's beautiful. The latitude you are given to speak up and do what you want to do when you are a high performer. That is a universal truth for almost every high performer I've ever met. I'm not saying it's fair. I'm saying I have, I've seen it a million times. I've experienced it many times myself and it's a beautiful thing. So figure out in a given performance context, wherever you are in your career, what does it mean to be a 20 percenter? What are those indicators? Give yourself a three, four, five year plan to make sure you do anything you have to do to be recognized as a top performer, because then you're insulated from almost everything that everyone is scared of and hates. I'm oversimplifying, but trying to make a a good point. Then there's the rest of the people. And you know what you said? You said it difficult. And I pride myself on being straightforward with difficult things as well. Sometimes you got to bend over and take it. So I get this question a lot. Hey, I'm working in a toxic situation. What do I do about it? And so I start probing with coaching related questions, just even if it's just an email exchange and go, okay, well, um, so let's talk about your status at work. How long have you been there? Uh, What is your status? Oh, you say it's good. Great. So what are the indicators it's good? I want to know what's the objective data. When's the last time you're promoted? Uh, Were you promoted relative to others fast or slow, et cetera? I want real data. I want to know where they are and whether or not they're full of it or serious when they tell me how how they fit into the status uh, hierarchy there at work. And the truth is, if they're not clearly uh, giving me answers that indicate, oh yeah, they're a 20 percenter, uh, which would require a very different type of answer that talks creatively about how you're going to go leverage the asset that you are, uh, I have to give a different answer. And that answer is, okay, so what you've got to ask yourself is, have you taken the risks and do you want to take the risk to change the situation? For example, if your boss was the source of the toxic culture, do you have any reason to believe that there's a conversation or multiple conversations that's going to change the tenor of this relationship? Uh, what is the topic or two or three, but probably just one or two that you're going to bring up in that conversation? When would you do that? Where will you do that? Should it just be you? Should it be you and others? There's a million little things to consider if you want to be intelligent about taking risks to change the nature of that situation. And there are risks and we have to talk about that. And if they don't want to take those risks, I do have to respect that. Here's one, right? I know my boss. Everyone else thinks they're a jerk. That's one of my favorite questions. Is this just you or do other people come to you and you guys actually all see this the same way? That's an important question. And if someone really is part of a group that sees this the same, well, then I know probably that this is a problematic boss. And under those conditions, you got 
got to ask yourself, what is the reasonable expectation for how long you will be with that person? What is that? Because if it's one or two years, you are not wise to make significant intervention type uh, efforts right now to change that deal. Are you on a trajectory that's going to separate you from this person in the next year or two or three? Well, then why would you take blowing up risks around conversations that they're not going to love? Uh, on the other hand, if you might be stuck with them for a long time, you've got to ask yourself, um, can I change it? How can I change it? If you don't have a good answer there, then you've got really difficult questions about what it means to cope or to use your phrase. You've got to take it sometimes. What does it mean to cope effectively? I don't want to encourage this hardly ever, but sometimes you've got to disconnect. And I don't, I don't want people to disconnect and do the minimal unless they're also really working hard to find their next play. What is that? That's networking. That's the resume. That's going on interviews. So can you create more and more opportunities so you're not stuck any longer than necessary? So there's not a great answer in the pandemic at all. So many people are forced into the gig economy that just were happy cube dwellers last week. What can they do? They should, number one, work on that network. Number two, and it's really close to number one, they should be consuming learning in a way they haven't for the last five years big time. Go on. I'm obviously an advocate of LinkedIn learning, but there's many other platforms as well. You should be cramming your head full of so many good things that you're just excited about what you're learning so that you can envision more opportunities and start to see paths forward to make them happen. I'm not saying it's easy. I tell them to wrap this rambling answer. I tell them the same thing I remember telling my MBA buddies back in the day when we were all getting rejected more than we were getting job offers right. after the MBA. I said, look at you. You should be proud of that wall of rejection letters, which we were. It was a, a badge of honor because you know what it symbolized? Us doing the work because sometimes when you finally get that breakthrough you're dreaming of, it doesn't just happen. It happens because you worked your way through so much and learned so much to get there. So what I say to them is it's not going to be easy and you got a lot of work to do, but it can be done. Yeah, I, I because this really resonates with me. Like I punched the freaking economy in the face bloody <laughs> until it gave me a freaking opportunity. <laughs> and, and it's not like I didn't know how to do it because I was a working musician. I knew how to get daggone gigs. But when there's structural employment, and I, and I would just want to say this to our listeners, be careful of that pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So frictional unemployment means there's a job out there, you just don't know where it is, or it's in another state, you can't afford to get to it. Structural unemployment, it means if you took every beating heart that wanted a job and could put them into any job available, so you could take a janitor and stick them in a rocket scientist role, that there's still a gap. And so we have to have empathy right now for our fellow people on the globe as we go through this. Don't be a jerk. Help out if you can. I just really have to plea for that. Mental health, my mental health took a giant dive during that time. I, I just had a baby. I just came out of grad school. I'm looking at to my wife. I may have just spent 40,000 on a degree and I don't, I don't have a BMW in the freaking, right. you know, I could have, I could have wasted it Las Vegas and had more fun than the, rejection after rejection looking. So please, listeners out there, if you can do anything, if you're in a HR role, do a better job about promoting your roles. Reach out within your community. If you're in a place of worship, you know, give to a food bank, volunteer. If, you, if you're a single person and can maybe take somebody in like a room, a buddy from sure. college that, that, I mean, Think about these things. Like in a crisis, they're in the world wars. Sorry, I'm just going on the soap pop. No, man, I love this rant. Go. During the world wars, we came together. 
you know, Rosie the Riveter. You know, ladies were like, you know, it's not a traditional job, but I'm going to learn how to dag on well. This is a time. Yeah. Like, and you were talking about this, Todd, and I got really passionate about it when you were talking about it, was this is a time for us to reinvent how we do community, culture, society, organizations, all of this stuff. Let's not let a good crisis go to waste. These social issues that are going on in the United States right now, let's take it to the moral right place. I think that there's a lot of people who agree with you. I mean, we, I'm happy to get off topic for just a moment and talk about this. Uh, I think there's a ton of people that agree with you. First of all, uh, every human you're going to meet has got issues that you just can't fathom. That is so true, so true, so true. And you should care now more than ever. I couldn't possibly agree more. I can't tell you how many freebies and pro bonos and other things I've been trying to do to, to walk that t- talk for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of research and we have wacky politicians on both sides and a media that's questionable no matter uh, how you feel about it. And as a result, they don't tell you this. There's plenty of research out there that suggests that a strong majority, often a two-thirds majority of our population across these allegedly different ideological groups really are on the same page about a variety of things. For example, the need for better infrastructure and roads, the need for better education for our kids, and all kinds of issues that often are used in very, very divisive ways. There's actually strong agreement in the in the uh, U.S. population. Yeah. And Pew we're not allowed it. to... in all yes, the studies. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. So there's, there's a real basis to have optimism about the, uh, your plea. And it's sad that so many people with power won't won't act on that for reasons we can speculate. And we don't have to wait on them. And that's what I'm saying. So if, you, if you've got extra room in your house, you're a single person, you know, but take a buddy who's out without a job, bring him in. You know, that we, we don't have to wait. We can show this leadership ourselves in our daily lives and the way that we execute. And, and for the organizations that are not leading with Essex here, People are going to remember when we pull out of this crisis, they're going to remember who you are. And it's going to be a giant black eye on your person and your brand. Well, you're, I think you're right. There's a parallel, though, Chris, for you. Before you let that go, I got to tell you, there's a parallel uh, org life versus uh, a change in, in real life, whether it's uh, civil rights change and how that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily leaders on high. It was uh, MLKs and, and others in the streets. And and the same happens inside organizations. Sometimes it's a, a leader we can't wait to put on a magazine cover. Very often it's a middle tier person who built a coalition and started from the bottom up and, and created momentum that way that a leader later jumped on board with. To your point, we don't have to wait. We can start where we are and attempt to plant those seeds. So thanks for saying that. And and collectivism's yeah. not going to get it. Retweeting some woke thing from Twitter, you know, start doing it. Go down to your <laughs> soup kitchen. And because like I just used to do music ministry work and everybody would come to the church. But when it came time to man the soup kitchen or meals on wheels, don't get nobody, me started. Nobody'd be there. And, and man, <laughs> like if you're really passionate, Right. And I know some kids want to go work with uh, non-governmental organizations overseas and all that stuff. And they tend to get rejected because they don't have any life expertise. Like, well, can you build like electrical infrastructure? No. Okay, sorry. That's our needs right now. This is a time that the NGO is here. It's you and your community. Well, that's an interesting way to say it. You should blog about that. Make sure people see it. You are an NGO. Run with that concept. That's interesting. Uh. All right. Yeah. I, I just feel uh, so passionate. Ben, let's I go ahead. It. No. So, uh, yeah, we're, we, I'm sure we could talk for hours about this stuff. I'm loving this uh, conversation. Uh, it's awesome. Um, you know, I, I guess just a couple questions as we start to wind down here. Um, you know, how do you, Todd, stay fresh and energized? I, I mean, I don't think you have a big problem with energy. I think you're doing pretty well in that department. But um, <laughs> just in general, like how, what, what keeps your ideas going? And, uh, you know, because you, you speak a lot and, you know, after you've Talk about certain topics a lot. How do you keep it all fresh? 
Well, I try to uh, stay diverse in what I consume. So I love books. I love movies. I love podcasts. And uh, I love the news. And so I read the left, the right, the uh, domestic, the international. And uh, I'm that guy who intentionally watches a, a genre he doesn't enjoy on a movie just to see how it makes him think and feel on occasion. <laughs> nice. I, I, I th- there's plenty of research in cog psychology and other places that suggests that when you uh, jar yourself into little bits of, of stimulus, uh, to enjoy little bits of stimulus that, that you norm, normally enjoy, that it changes how you think. Long story short, one of the proactive kind of prescriptions for creative thought in general is that you got to mix up those routines that dominate our lives. And believe me, they dominate our lives. And they give us great efficiencies that we need. On the other hand, they become ruts very easily. And so I like to digest broadly and diversely. I like to, to listen to uh, voices that uh, consistently, I love NPR, for example, but I always make sure to throw in something uh, uh, including Fox as well as NPR and then the BBC and then Irish Times, who knows? I like to mix it up on purpose to try and uh, get that much closer to whatever the truth might be by looking at different perspectives. And I think that simple, honest take, I just admitted, number one, that I can't know the truth as, as much as I, I wish I could sometimes. And then I'll, I'll put out effort to try and get closer. I think that's missing from so many people. And as an educator, I'm trying to get others excited about that idea. And it does start, by the way, to answer more than you want to, Ben, it it does start with laughing about, and I do laugh about it, how little we know and how we don't know everything. If more people had that orientation, we would see so much, so much less strife left to right and otherwise, old, young, black, white, all the strife that we see, we would see less of it. I'm convinced of that if we all kind of Duh, began with, you know, I don't know much. And there's this, this is what there is to know. And I know that. And, and, you know, greatest thing I ever learned 10 years in college by far is how little I know. That is an empowering notion. The only question for you is how you feel about it because it's true. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I guess there's just one last question that I have for you and uh, kind of let you have the last word on this one. I'm Curious to know, is there anything that you know now um, that perhaps you would have liked to have known 10 years ago or so? Yeah, I think I was still of the opinion 10 years ago, and this I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to say something too negative about the human race, but uh, we are a difficult lot. I think we can agree on that. Um, I wanted to believe that on average, our ability to um, move them forward was stronger than I think it is. For example, I would go out as a young PhD and really appeal intellectually to people in conversations and attempt to bring them up uh, fast. And that was not productive on, hmm. on average. It really wasn't productive. The truth is you need to start simple and people are very busy slash simple, some interesting combination of those two things. <laughs> and if you want them to go, what? Uh, okay, I get it. If you want that to actually happen, you better be brief and clear and kind and positive when you reach out to them. And I've been working on that ever since. Love it. So where can people find you on the web, et cetera, uh, to make sure they can find out more about you? Well, uh, thanks for asking. If anyone here is not connected to me, just check me out on LinkedIn. That'd be great. And of course, my website, my home on the web is drdoit.com. Awesome. And we'll be sure to post all the links to that in the show notes. You know, Todd, this has been just a pleasure. The time flew by. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Indigo Podcast. My pleasure to both of you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. 
Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.